This week on the Tech on Tap podcast, we talk VMware, private cloud, and how it fits with NetApp HCI. Welcome to the Tech on Tap podcast with Justin Parisi. I love NetApp. Oh, yeah. NetApp. I love this company. Zipok. Zipok. I love NetApp because it's so funny. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Tech on Tap podcast. My name is Justin Parisi. I'm in the studio here and I'm on a WebEx. On the phone we have Andy Banta and we have Sean Howard. So Sean, if you could tell everybody what you do here at NetApp and how to reach you, that'd be great. So I'm a uh, solution architect, TME, for um, you know folks mostly on the HCI. You can reach me, um, HOWS at NetApp.com or uh, S Howard NetApp on Twitter. All right. Also on the phone with us, uh, the storage janitor himself, Andy Banta. Hi, Andy. That's right. I am the storage janitor. Uh, actually, the name of our business unit is the Cloud Infrastructure Business Unit, the CIBU. And uh, I am st- I'm a storage janitor. Actually, uh, Sean and I work together in the tech solutions team. And uh, our, our whole goal here is to actually come up with like solutions that may, uh, make sense for people who actually want to use NetApp HCI. Why in the world would you want to make th- have things make sense and be easy? Uh, because there's too many people out in the world trying to make things too difficult. <laughs> this is true. No, it's great. If you overcomplicate it, it shows you how smart you are <laughs> and how cool your stuff is, right? That's right. Yeah. It's, you know, if you uh, can't talk about it in excruciating detail and confuse everybody else, then you're, uh, you're probably useless. Uh, so um, we're going to talk about VMware uh, private cloud, uh, specifically on HCI. But before we do that, let's do a 10,000-foot view of HCI. And then we're going to go a 10,000-foot view of what VMware private cloud is. And it, you know, it's pretty much what it sounds like. But let's start off with HCI. So who wants to tackle that one? Uh, I, I can run with that because I've been here uh, quite a while. So NetApp HCI is, uh, is the other product from NetApp. Uh, the whole idea here is that we actually sell modular uh, storage and compute nodes that you can inform into, uh, uh, you know, infrastructure for your data center. So the whole idea is that we are supplying both the compute and the storage in separate pieces. And uh, since we actually set, um, supply them in separate pieces, they're very um, they're very scalable. So you can have them use them from anywhere from like two to sixty four compute nodes, and anywhere from four to forty storage nodes. Every time you add compute nodes, you're able to run more uh, virtual processes, that type of thing. And every time you add a, a storage node, you're adding both capacity and throughput to your storage. So as your needs change, typically increase, but they could also decrease. You can add or subtract nodes as you need. And that's all non-disruptive, right? I'm sorry? That's all non-disruptive, right? There's no disruption when doing it. It is entirely non-disruptive. Okay. So, yeah, you can you can add nodes, you can remove nodes anytime you want with workloads continuing to run. Uh, you don't even really need to do that much to your virtual infrastructure to, to allow this to happen. Uh, you simply can say, I need to evacuate this node. And over the course of several minutes, that happens. Uh, everything that was on, on a particular node um, get shifted elsewhere, and you don't really need to do anything. Um, really, one of the key reasons that we actually use the HCI product for 
the VMware private cloud is uh, the whole idea that we um, HCI was built on the idea of being an entirely multi-tenant uh, infrastructure. So the whole idea is that instead of building up separate HCI clusters or separate HCI environments for each one of your workloads, you can actually consolidate them all into one HCI setup. So the whole idea here is that you can run like your desktops and your databases and your web servers and everything off of one NetApp HCI cluster rather than having to split it up and, and have separate uh, clusters for each one of your workloads. So that's really the key reason why we decided to go with VMware Private Cloud on NetApp HCI. Yeah, and what's interesting about HCI is that initially when it came out, the target kind of was the vSphere VMware administrators, right? So it was kind of the simplicity play into that market. But as we started developing it and, and you know, people started seeing other use cases, and one of those was building your own cloud provider, right, being, being a private cloud itself. So let's dive into the VMware private cloud and let's talk about what that is and why somebody would want to do that. I'm going to let Sean run with that one. Sure. So, um, I mean, essentially, people are, are probably going to be already familiar with consuming public cloud resources like Gout and Amazon, Azure, these different things, where you go out there and you have a catalog of stuff, you know, AMI images or what have you, that I can quickly build a little virtual data center. I can spin up, say, you know, three SQL nodes and a, and a couple of IIS nodes in front of it to, and a load balancer and firewall rules and that. I, I create my own little virtual data center real fast or via API if I don't want to use a, a GUI and uh, spin it all up real fast, run it for however long I need to run it, tear it all down real fast. It's portable across the different uh, availability zones and stuff that they have. That same experience um, and maybe, you know, even seeing how much it's going to cost to run this for a month and those kinds of things, that same experience if you want to run that in your private data center, um, VMware Private Cloud is the way to do that. And uh, having come from VMware, I was there for seven years. And I'm, a, I'm a super VMware fanboy, uh, double VCDX, all that stuff. So I'm going to um, definitely say that's the, that's the way to go. And uh, having that experience in your enterprise allows you to get kind of the best of both worlds of having it on-prem you get all the security, governance, things like that that you don't that, that are harder to do in the public cloud, but um, that same self-service kind of experience that uh, is in the public cloud get the get the best of both. Yeah, and when you say it's harder to do in the public cloud, that has to do with control, right? And when you have your own private cloud, you're able to have more control over how that's operated. Right, I, I own it. It's in my data center. I've got all kinds of fail safes and stuff, and there's only so much. That and I, I get to say, you know, what kind of level of, uh, you know, how much they can deploy, you know, with via quotas and things like that. I can set up things like, well, if they deploy something that's going to cost twenty thousand dollars a month, it sends an email and automatically sends an email to the director, and the director has to respond yes before it will deploy it. Things like that that prevent the sprawl. Um, everybody's, I'm sure, familiar with the legends of. You go out to AWS, and before you know it, you have a million-dollar-a-month bill because everybody's just deploy, 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 and there's no governance around it. Um, so both from a security and and a consumption perspective. Would this be something that only large enterprises would want to do, or is this something that fits for all use cases, for all sizes? 
Well, it doesn't fit for the very smallest. Um, th- there is a sort of an entry point because the, the smallest footprint that you would have for VMware Private Cloud is going to be eight hosts, right? And that's going to be so, – so you at least need to be in the hundreds of VMs. Like, you don't have to be super gigantic, but at least a couple hundred VMs before it makes sense to, to get into doing this kind yeah, of stuff. Guess- I guess one of the key ways to think about this is you would, um, when you have uh, consumers who aren't your operations department, uh, you know, you have to have enough people in your organization where you actually would have like a, an IT department that is supposedly putting together services for consumers in, um, in the organization. And the whole idea is that if you're going to have just a handful of smaller, uh, you know, consumers, you can actually have like a one-on-one relationship with them. Um, if you have a, a larger organization, you don't want to get into this idea where you have to like use a ticketing system to get things done on, on your uh, infrastructure. You want to be able to have the consumers go out and do self-service work rather than having this, uh, you know, everything get funneled through an ID, IT department. So that's that's kind of where the breakdown should be. Okay. Now, now that said, that eight host entry point, it scales up uh, quite considerably, and the architecture, even though a, a given cluster can only be sixty-four uh, ESX hosts, I mean you can have multiple clusters, multiple regions, all that stuff. So this this thing scales super well. It's great for start small, grow big. What kind of scale are we looking at with HCI? Like, how big can we get essentially with that? You can, I mean, you can get the, the VMware private cloud, um, what we call, you know, the VMware validated design that we're in the middle of uh, finalizing with VMware right now, scales up to 20,000 VMs um, in, the, in the architecture, you know, just using it's like sort of modularized, podized architecture. I mean, like I said, a, a given individual cluster of storage nodes can be 40 hosts, an individual cluster of compute nodes can be 64 hosts. If you had that, 64 and 40, that would be a whole rack of stuff, um, you know, filled to the filled to the brim. And uh, but you can have multiple of those, right? So 20,000 uh, VMs, just kind of like a VDI infrastructure type of setup. Does this also fit into the enterprise space where you have like your enterprise applications running Oracle or SAP or Exchange? Sure. Absolutely, yeah. So that is that is the whole point of this, is that it's not only going to be running VDI, it's going to be running all sorts of different workloads. Um, the the whole idea here is to actually consolidate it down and have it all running on, on one system. And one of the nice things about the NetApp HCI architecture is um, the more workloads you put on it, the better the efficiencies are on it. So it, it actually handles deduplication across the entire uh, cluster and therefore the the more things you actually put on it, the better efficiencies you're going to get out of it. And the, the same is true for the throughput side of it. The, um, the NetApp HCI uh, storage systems were never set up to be single workload uh, engines. They were set up entirely to have a variety of diverse workloads running against them. So how does performance look on these types of workloads? I mean, is it something that is enterprise level or is it, you know, something that, you know, it's sustainable and consistent and well, it- not, not only is it enterprise level, it's absolutely enterprise level. Um, absolutely. Big- That's <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> um, 
you know, enterprise service providers. We've got a number of, I mean, that, that, that's a huge area that, uh, you know, that Solid Fire and HCI has sold into is service providers being able to have very large environments with aggregate demand of, of for IOPS and so forth in, you know, very high numbers, but being able to deliver that down to even the smallest consumer in a consistent, predictable fashion. That's the biggest thing about, like you say, the mixed workloads and highly demanding workloads is not just being able to do a million IOPS or whatever, but being able to do it and have it be consistently always returning in one millisecond or what have you, right? And how does your QoS play into that? I mean, does the QoS help that along, or is it something that's necessary, or is it something that is nice to have? Uh, yeah, yeah. No, the, the QoS is, is pretty much key to all of this. So the whole idea is that you actually can allocate um, QoS settings to your individual workloads. You set a, a min, max, and a burst um, to, you know, it, you can do it at a VMFS level, but you can also do it at a, a virtual disk level if you're using virtual volumes as well. And the whole idea here is that if you actually set the, those mins and maxes, that, um, that you'll your workload is guaranteed those uh, those numbers. And uh, as I said, the whole idea of, of doing this at scale is that, um, you know, you're not going to have like a, a database where you're going to run uh, 500,000 IOPS against that one database. But if you have a, a bunch of different workloads on your system, um, they're all going to get the their guaranteed minimum uh, quality of service and they're all going to coexist on the one cluster. So it's it's not like you have to go out and buy a different piece of equipment for each one of them. So the, the QoS and the multi-tenancy fit hand in hand. That's the, the whole reason why you would have the, the quality of service set up on the system would be to allow the multi-tenancy. And the, the QoS, if I could add, is um, integral to the, the very function of the element operating system that, that's the, the thing that uh, runs our storage. And um, it's so integral from it, you know, it, built from the ground up to do this thing that it's there's nothing else on the market that can even come close to how it's able to predictably, dependably deliver every IOP in a set response time, regardless of what kind of crazy thrashing of different workloads is going on and stuff. Every individual workload gets what it's guaranteed in a predictable fashion. There, there's just nothing that comes close. There's, there's attempts at, at QoS out there that do that can sort of limit and throttle and kind of do that stuff. But the reason they have, you know, their vendors have such a hard time implementing it is because they didn't build it from the ground up this way. The very basic function of Element OS is from the start um, set to expect multiple workloads and expect to have to do QoS enforcement. Right. And so, I mean, the, the whole SolidFire and, and Element OS idea was to kind of virtualize storage the same way that VMware virtualized compute. So the whole idea is that if you actually are running an all-flash storage system, um, you're going to have like more capacity and and more throughput than any one workload would need. So let's actually come up with a, a way of sensibly dividing this up among the various different workloads. So uh, you can think of Element OS as kind of being the, um, the storage virtualization that VMware brought to the compute side of the business, compute side of the world. So how does mobility look for this? I mean, you know, I may want to start with a private cloud, but what if I want to eventually migrate into public cloud? Is that pretty simple to do with HCI? I mean, or is that something, or if I just want to do data protection with it? Um, so, I mean, there we have various 
methods of using data protection. But one of the things to think about is that if you're actually trying to do a hybrid cloud uh, setup for whatever your environment, that a, a big piece of this means needs to be that your internal, your um, the your own data center needs to act cloud-like to begin with. So you can think of uh, the VMware private cloud work that we're doing as kind of the basis of, of any hybrid cloud that you would be, potentially be talking about as well. Um, it, it's uh, actually Adam Carter and a handful of other people have uh, a much bigger story on the entire NetApp HCI with hybrid cloud. Uh, Sean and I have uh, had been heads down for the past six months, uh, making sure that the, the private cloud piece of it works as we might expect. Yeah, and I mean, that's that's a good way to put it, is you have to cloudize your workloads internally so that once you've done that, then they're very easy to, to you know, very portable and easy to move around. And it's not just a storage thing. I mean, NetApp's got a great data fabric story. You've got a great story about doing things like Snap Mirror, say, for example, between Element and ONTAP. We've got, you know, up in uh, Amazon, they've got the VMware, you know, this VMware on Amazon offering. We have on tap offerings we have element offerings we can do even out in you know co-located in the various data centers that amazon is in things like that but more importantly is is holistically making that that workload cloudized it's not just a storage thing there's network components to it so for example in our vvd we prescribe nsx to make it so that that thing its network is abstracted. Absolutely every component of that workload is something that can be picked up and plugged into any other workload, any other, sorry, cloud running the same stack. That's absolutely the goal. Right, and, and I mean, one of the key things to think about with NSX is that it's, uh, it's pretty much allowing you to provision your network uh, automatically much the way that you would if you were using an Amazon or an Azure or Google Cloud. So the, the whole idea is that you don't need to go out and plug cables into switches and go dive into iOS to configure it. Um, it it's all just kind of built into the cloud uh, architecture. And the, the way that we actually have built out the cloud is to actually use VMware's vRealize suite. So it's going to be a bunch of concepts that anybody who use it, who's familiar with VMware is already familiar with. We're not going off and you know, creating a, a whole new management and um, operations and automation layer. We're actually using one that's out there that an awful lot of people know already. There's something like, um, I don't know, a thousand VMware cloud partners. I mean, there's Amazon, of course, but then there's tons of other ones, boutique ones, mid-sized ones, rack space, et cetera, that, that um, anyone running that stack you can move to. So, Sean, I'm going to have to have to ask, um, CloudEyes, is that an IETF standard? <laughs> yeah, it should be. Um, <laughs> I like it. You've been CloudEyesed. Yep. No, it, you, can, you can verb just about any word. You can, by eyesing it. By eyesing it, yeah. That's right. All right, uh, so I want you to banta-eyes this for me now. Um, how does this all work? Like technically, how does HCI fit together and you know, what protocols does it use and you know, how does it all kind of work technically in terms of you know, the, the overall architecture? Well, it's, uh, I mean, 
you're getting into the the nerd part of it, which is uh, what yes. somebody who's actually building a cloud really shouldn't care about. This is true. Uh, but I mean, the whole the whole idea here is that we're all it's all entirely based on Ethernet connectivity. So each one of our nodes, uh, each one of our compute nodes, actually has four ten by or ten twenty five gig uh, Ethernet ports. Out of them, two of those are dedicated for storage, and two of those are intended for you know, just general VMware workloads. They um, all of our nodes actually have a, a handful or a pair of uh, one gig ports on them that are intended for management as well. However, uh, on any one of our nodes, you can actually also just uh, bond the management into your 1025 setup. And then the storage nodes just have uh, two 1025 uh, gigabit Ethernet ports. And the whole idea there is that that's that's where we serve the storage traffic out of, and that's actually where any of the um, the backend cluster communication happens as well. So if you actually take a look at what a, at one of our uh, at what our HCI nodes look like, they actually are um, the, the the most common ones that you would see would be the um, half width one U nodes that fit into a, a two U chassis, so you can get four nodes into one chassis, and that can be any mix of compute and storage that you want. Um, we also have uh, standalone storage nodes that actually um, are, are one U full width uh, chassis, and th those have 12 drives as opposed to the half width right. ones, six drives. Um, and you can mix and match these any way you want. Uh, we also have a uh, to you, uh, compute only node that has a uh, GPU built into it that's intended to virtualize up to 128 uh, virtual desktops. So these are these are the building blocks that you have to work with. So uh, a variety of different storage size nodes, a variety of different compute size nodes. Uh, the most common ones being the the half width one U with uh, the the storage only nodes being one U's and the compute only nodes being two U's. Well, that's a great that's a great point Andy makes. Is you try to avoid getting into the nerd knobs, and you think more about just these things as building blocks, Lego style building blocks of uh, capacity, whether it's storage, you know, IOPS capacity, or you know, terabytes capacity, or whether it's you need more CPU and RAM for your workloads, whatever it is. You just think of these things as blocks, and they're interchangeable. There's no you don't have to carefully architect things such that, you know, you have to think about the six drives that are in a half U storage node or whatever. You know, you, now you're committed forever. Every time you add a node, you have to add it in that way. It's not like that. The the building blocks can all be mixed and matched as you grow and as your needs change. So is this iSCSI protocol only? Or are we also doing fiber channel in these? What uh, are we doing? No, this is this is entirely iSCSI. So we, we don't even have any fiber channel ports on any of these boxes, everything comes out of the box as Ethernet. That's that's kind of what I was trying to hit on with uh, with enumerating the Ethernet ports. So everything is Ethernet on this. Um, it's going to be iSCSI between the compute and the storage nodes. Uh, keep in mind that you can also throw ONTAP Select on top of this. ONTAP Select comes with every HCI instance if you if you're so inclined, and ONTAP Select is going to give you file services. Uh, right off of the, the same cluster. So it's um, uh, in, in terms of the way that the types of storage, it's going to be iSCSI and NFS. So it's going to be 
IP-based storage like normal humans should use. <laughs> this is true. It's It complicates things greatly to try to throw a F, uh, fiber channel in there. Uh, so if we're looking for simplicity. Exactly. I mean, you, you need more ports and you need dedicated HBAs for that stuff. And it's like, no, nobody really cares about that. It's you're you're just trying to come up with some way of provisioning workloads. Let's just keep it simple. One of the things, if we want to get nerdy for a second, one of the things that when I first dove into this architecture and started understanding it, that impressed me and I thought it was cool. I'm a big time fiber channel guy historically. So for me to embrace iSCSI, there, there were some pretty cool things going on. Um, one of them being the redirect. So there have been store, uh, scale out storage systems that have existed, um, you know, Isilon, different things like that, where the idea is you have this commodity x86 box that's running some kind of storage OS. And you add additional, you know, rather than having a pair of big monolithic controllers and a whole bunch of disks behind it, that that traditional architecture, those controllers are are a bottleneck Um, because, you know, PCI bus can only push so much and you have basically this this big, this one spot that everything has to go through. There have been architectures kind of like Element that have a bunch of nodes and they scale out horizontally. The problem is, how do you use those controllers? How do you make it so it's all your connections aren't just going through some master controller, and then and then you're, you're back to that original, or you know that back to that original problem? How do you make it so your connections actually leverage all the different nodes, your 10, 20, 40, however many nodes you've got? And the answer with this now, one answer, and this is the answer with most of the systems, you have to carefully balance connections yourself, um, either through DNS tricks or through manually going, okay, this host is going to mount all of its iSCSI connections on that storage node. This one's going to mount them all on that one. That gets to be a big management nightmare and, and easy to mess up. This intelligently redirects. So there's one master node. All the connections go to that, basic, basically. And it will decide, oh, hey, I've got an underutilized node. Node number 19 or whatever is underutilized. Um, I'm going to send you to that. And iSCSI has built into it a redirect command that can say, hey, temporarily redirect your connection to node 19. So now all of that volume's connections are going that way from that host. <clears throat> and uh, that can all change because it's a temporary redirect. So we can later on, we can force re-logins, we can force a rebalancing, but long story short, it's the most effective way to utilize multiple controllers, multiple inbound controllers that I've ever seen um, yeah. that, that didn't require a ton of headaches. Right. And this is, this is actually one of the, the key reasons why just about anybody who does True scale-out storage is used iSCSI. They, they all went at, at it with the approach of iSCSI because of this redirect. So the redirect is kind of key to being allowed, being able to do do the multiple controllers and load balancing across them. So this redirect is standard to iSCSI. Is it Alua-like, or is it actually Alua, or is it something entirely different? Oh uh, no, it's something entirely different. So I, I mean, Alua is. Is kind of this whole idea that you you're clamping connections down to a particular controller, and the iSCSI redirect is is just a, a very simple um, you you establish an iSCSI connection to a system. That system is going to say, oh, here's the best way to actually make here's the best way to actually get to the resource that you want to use, and 
before before you actually do any data communication at all, the this happens you know instantaneously when you initiate a connection and it establishes the connection to the right resource. And as Sean was uh, was saying that if you need to redirect it to another resource at some other point, you simply tell the consumer, hey, uh, you know, you, you probably want to go back and ask for a new resource here. And that happens again uh, flawlessly. Well, you you won't see any seamlessly, I guess would be the appropriate word. You won't see any interruption service. It simply happens. And I, it, it's if, if you think about scale out systems, this is the way they would kind of work, where as you add new nodes, you can um, in, in like the under resourced uh, or under um, used resource resource uh, scenario that Sean was talking about. It's like, okay, you have a new node. Well, of course, that's going to be underused because there's nothing on it. So as resources start getting moved over to that node, then you would sit, um, have the tell the host system, hey, um, you want to go log into node 19 now. So that's that's the whole idea for the redirect. And the, the really clean, simple thing about it is that if you actually look at your ESX host systems, they don't actually have to keep track of all the various different nodes. The only thing they have to keep track of is the one node where they, they make the initial connection. And if you take a look at the um, discovery table in iSCSI on, a, on an ESX system, you'll see there's only one entry for each target. So what's the metric that is used to determine what the best available node is? Is it throughput? Is it CPU? Is it a combination of those things? Uh, it is, from from our perspective, it would be CPU and capacity. So each one of our volumes is actually, the metadata for it is actually going to be, um, the primary source of the metadata is going to be on one of the nodes. And uh, if if the volume is too large to fit, uh, you know, if there's, there's already a lot of large volumes that would potentially get migrated to another node, or if there's uh, high QoS resources associated with that volume, it might get it as, um, migrated to another node. So that's the way that we distribute the resources is if you have either a large volume or a volume that's going to be heavily used, we'll spread those across all of the various different nodes and we'll use the iSCSI redirection to tell the host, oh, to get to that volume that you want to use, you would go, you would primarily talk to this node. So um, that that node would have the metadata associated with a particular volume. Um, all of the data associated with the volumes is going to be spread across the entire cluster. I mean, you can think the easy way to think about it is it's just like least connection load balancing on an F5 or something. Okay, so what if I add a new node? Do I have the risk of piling up all my new connections to that node, or do we handle that a little more intelligently? Oh, no. It, it's, uh, I mean, we will always just attempt to balance out the volumes uh, so the entire cluster is fairly evenly used. Each, each one I think about it, not just, not just adding nodes, but even creating volumes and stuff could create a situation where I create a bunch of new volumes could create a situation where the rebalancing needs to happen. So that, that's going on all the time. It's not just as you know, a brand new host and a brand new node comes in. It's all the time looking and figuring this out. What sort of performance impact do we see from the rebalancing? Uh, none. It's you. Uh, you don't see any changes at all. It, it's uh, you know, 
the the only thing that might actually happen is if you go in and you all of a sudden say that a new volume needs some very high number of minimum IOPS, uh, it might take the cluster a minute or two to to migrate that metadata over to some other volume to be able to satisfy that request. But it would only ever happen when a request to, to change happens. Otherwise, anytime you create a volume, it should uh, be able to get its minimum QoS and behind the scenes, we're going to migrate stuff around. It, it's, it's one of those things where um, the consumer, the, the users would never under, never have any idea that anything's actually changing. Okay. And what about failures? If we have a node failure or, you know, if a compute node fails or a storage node fails, how do we handle that? Uh, well, I mean, compute nodes, let's, let's handle the, the trivial case first because it's um, compute nodes are going to be handled by VMware. So if you have uh, resource clusters and the compute node fails, um, it, if you actually have like uh, high availability or uh, fault tolerance set up on a particular VM, the VMware side is going to pick up and, and say, oh, uh, you know, this thing crashed. We need to bring it up on another node. Or if you actually have high, have high availability, um, you will potentially have it on running on two different nodes. And if one of those nodes uh, fails, um, the, the other node will become the primary for that high availability setup. Uh, from the, the storage side, uh, the, the way that, uh, that SolidFire Element OS lays out data is that it's, uh, it's a Helix setup. So uh, the whole idea is that um, for any given piece of data, there's a primary and there's a secondary. And um, if you have like the primary for five volumes on one node, uh, the secondaries for those nodes, um, for those volumes are going to actually be spread across all of the other nodes. And so in this case, if that node happens to fail, um, you actually have all of the, all of the remaining cluster taking over the work of, um, of covering what that node had been doing. So this is actually one of the reasons why you don't, we don't end up with these long recovery times. Like, uh, you know, you don't, we don't want it in a degraded mode, like uh, a typical raid setup would while you're actually rebuilding or, uh, or working with a failed system. The whole idea with, uh, with element OS was rather than running in a degraded mode, um, recover from the problem as quickly as possible and go back to a steady running state. So if a node fails, uh, it's typically going to be somewhere around uh, 20 minutes to actually get everything back uh, redistributed across all of the nodes the way it should be with primaries up and running. But while during that those 20 minutes, you're going to be able to run, all of your workloads are, are going to be running and they should all be, uh, you know, getting the, the type of service that they would expect. And the other nice thing about that is that it, um, if a node actually fails, uh, unless you're running a completely dark site, uh, SolidFire support is probably going to be the one who calls the customer and says, hey, you had a node failure. Uh, that might be the fastest way they find out about it because they might not even realize it themselves. So they, they shouldn't see any any change in their workloads uh, when a node fails. We, we will we will take any of the uh, volumes that were being served off of that storage node and immediately start serving them off of the other nodes in the cluster. Okay. So what advice would you have for either customers who want to use this or people who are trying to sell this uh, as to what, how you want to approach it, right? Like, is it a, a one size fits all approach? You know, it can run any workloads or are there things you want to maybe focus on 
with uh, HCI versus things you don't want to do with it? Um, I mean, the the only things that you really wouldn't want to do with it would be the the super low latency uh, workloads that would be out there, like a, an SAP HANA or um, you know high performance computing, that type of things. Um, you know, the NetApp portfolio has uh, devices that handle that. Typically, the E series would be the you know the race car type one workload ideas, but it goes back to what I started off talking about is multi-tenancy, baby. Everything, you throw all your workloads on this one box and uh, the, you know, the more workloads you throw at it, the, the better it's actually going to uh, balance things out and, and distribute them. Yeah, for clarity, we're, when we say low latency, um, he means super ultra low. Like, like this thing is low latency. It's We're going to consistently return your IOPS into a millisecond. Um, but if you're talking about nanosecond sensitive workloads, that's a different exactly, okay. yeah, line. yeah. Uh, so I mean, it, it's the I, I can't hammer this point home enough. This is an effort to get rid of siloed uh, um, data center environments. You know, throw throw NetApp HCI into your data center and have all your workloads run against it. It's that's that's the whole game plan here, um, and it, it's it's intended to be used that way. Does it handle mixed workload types pretty well? I mean, you know, random versus sequential and that absolutely, sort of thing. Absolutely, that's that's where the um, the whole quality of service uh, idea comes in. It's um, if you have one type of workload that needs certain characteristics for its storage. You set the quality of service appropriately for that. If you have different workloads that need different types of service, you set the quality of service appropriately for those, and they will not interfere with each other. Uh, Element OS was the the noisy neighbor killer. You kind of think of it like reservations. So if you're a vSphere admin, you're going to be familiar with if I want to take a VM and and reserve, you know, eight gigs of memory or whatever, that memory is taken away on that host. I mean, that memory is, whether that VM uses it or not, that, that, that memory is carved off and nothing else now will ever step on its memory footprint. It can be set up. So this can be set up in a similar way where if you have a really important workload, you can basically reserve IOPS. You can say, I want this workload to always get 50,000 IOPS um, at this response time at this block size. And it can carve that off from the cluster and nothing else can use it. Um, so there's, there's a number of ways to do that, but that's probably the best way to think of it. And, uh, what about VVOL support? How, how does it look with that? I mean, where do we stand with that? VVOL support definitely is there. And the whole idea with, uh, with NetAppHCI and virtual volumes is that you can actually go off and assign each one of your virtual disks, its own guaranteed QoS settings. And that gets applied you know, at the VM level, at the virtual disk level, instead of actually setting them up at, on the VMFS Level. So with VMFS, you're stuck with the idea that you can actually say this data store, which has this many VMs in it, um, you know, has this type of characteristics, and you you run into the potential problem there of you could have a noisy neighbor within that data store that would uh, um, had has the possibility of actually eating resources or consuming resources that another VM in that data store was going to use. You go to virtual volumes. And each one of the individual VMs, each one of the uh, individual virtual disks are uh, are protected and have their own quality of service settings. 
And the really cool thing about that is that you can actually change the quality of service on the fly and don't need to storage feed motion them. So uh, as you're, if you have a workload that's running, actually we have a customer who does this already where they have, um, they have a VM and they have certain quality service settings set on it. And they know that when they do their backups at night, they're actually going to need to increase the quality of service for that individual VM so you can actually do the backup on it. So they programmatically change the quality of service on that VM before the backup script starts. And when the backup script is done, they change it back to the original setting. And that happens without needing the storage fees motion, without needing to move the VM at all. I was just speaking to a team today that's building out a HCI environment that's, you know, it's not huge. It's maybe 1,500, um, 1500 uh, VDI VMs. But um, we're talking, they were talking about how the best way to design your data stores. And while, I mean, SolidFire or HCI offers all these cool, all, all these cool benefits that, but when you're using traditional data stores, you still do have to think about how many VMs per data store, how many data stores, how big are they, um, all that kind of stuff. How am I going to set QoS because I'm going to have, say, 50 VMs on one data store or whatever. How am I going to calculate QoS for that? Um, and it's and you know, I'm telling them, look, just move to Vvols because all that goes away, that whole, you know, how many data stores do you have to maximize across your nine storage node controllers the number of connections and, and all that stuff, all those variables, you just don't really have to think about with VVols. You just, you have 1,500 VVols. And uh, so you end up with optimal iSCSI connection balancing, optimal, you know, really granular QoS, and you know, it's just super easy to administer. So are we on VVols 1.0, 2.0? I mean, what's the, the limit we're on right now? No, we're, we're currently on 1.0, VVols 1.0, VASA 2.0. Okay. I'm guessing roadmap for the other stuff, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Roadmaps for the other stuff. Um, you know, it's simply a matter of uh, how much stuff we can cram into Element OS on any given release. And, uh, you know, that, that stuff takes time. Um, one of the big pushes that VMware is on right now is um, with their most recent release, uh, ESX 6.7, uh, SCSI 3 reservations are supported with Evolves. And so uh, if... Um, if you see me with my laptop anytime soon, you will notice that I have a no RDM sticker on the back of my laptop now. So the whole idea is that if you can actually do SCSI 3 reservations on VVOLs, why would you ever want to have an RDM? I mean, that's really... That, that the... comes up in particular with, like, Microsoft clusters and things like that. Absolutely, yep. Yep. Especially with, like, uh, the Exchange stuff. Absolutely, yep. So you were mentioning earlier about these one U units and you know what they look like. If I wanted to see one in person, how would I do that? Well, are you going to be in Spain in a couple weeks, uh, Justin? <laughs> you better believe it. Okay. Well, uh, why don't you head over to uh, NetApp Insight in Barcelona, and we actually will have our uh, little HCI in a, a roller box uh, there at the booth, where you can actually you know stick your fingers in an HCI box and and you know. Um, you know, have the fans uh, chew up your fingernails. And actually, Sean and I are going to be doing a big discussion on VMware Private Cloud. And and I know, Justin, that you've actually spent more time talking about HCI here. But uh, the, the VMware Private Cloud, actually, we, we have some really cool things that we show off there as well. Um, VRealize Operations Manager now has some integrations for NetApp HCI. So you can go in and, and use Ops Manager to, to look at 
things. Uh, we show off a little bit about how a consumer might use vRealize automation to deploy VMs, that type of thing. So that that's more of the private cloudy piece and portion of it rather than NetApp HCI. But if you're not actually going to be in NetApp Insight uh, in, in Barcelona, uh, you can probably talk to, to one of your NetApp salespeople and get, uh, take a gander at one of the NetApp HCI systems. Uh, I also believe that netapp.com slash HCI puts you on a landing page where you can get really cool color pictures of, uh, of them if you, uh, if you can't actually go touch them on your own. So what kind of sessions do we have at Insight for Barcelona? And, and honestly, sessions in general, because we can look at the sessions after Insight. Where do we? Uh, which ones do we have there? I, I mean, the sessions that I have there, uh, the one I'm actually presenting with Sean would be the VMware Private Cloud on NetApp HCI. So getting in, diving into a lot more detail, showing off some of the automation that we have available uh, with VMware Private Cloud. And then I actually have two VVOL sessions. So I do my... Uh, my SolidFire Element OS virtual volumes deep dive, where I actually go through uh, a bunch of the implementation details. It, it's one of the, the most fun sessions I do. It's a really good technical deep dive. You will learn more about virtual volumes implementation than you ever hoped you could learn. And uh, the other thing that's uh, I think is really cool is we have uh, some virtual volume success stories. So that's not just NetApp HCI or Element OS, but that would also be on tap as well, where we actually hear from some of the customers who are going out and using virtual volumes, pretty happy with it, and their their success stories. So, um, I mean, we have we have a handful of customers that are really doing big things with virtual volumes and uh, are using them and very happy with them. So those are the three sessions that I'll be out there for. Uh, Sean, you want to plug our session a little bit more? Yeah, so we'll be talking about, um, when we say VMware Private Cloud, I mean, there's, there's a number of things we'll be talking about there, partly just how it works and, and what you get for doing it, but also the specific things NetApp is doing in partnership with VMware. Uh, for example, um, you know, we have the NetApp Verified Architecture that we're putting out there. We have the, we, the hope is that at Insight Barcelona, we'll be announcing the completion of our VMware uh, validated design, and what that is is that gets us a uh, VMware certified partner architecture um, certification, I guess, that uh, <clears throat> such that our architectures that we're putting out there are vetted by not only us but VMware. So we have an architecture that says, okay, when you set up HCI, you want to do it like this. To when you you know and you want to install the VMware products like that. Um, that's certified, but we both companies have worked in conjunction to be able to vet that out and say that yes, this is the best way to do it, and uh, and so forth. And like he was saying, there's going to be a bunch of automations. There's there's automation that we've created already, and additional automation we continue to create to make that as seamless as possible. So you don't have to do as much click 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 click. You know when you set things up. We have scripts and stuff that we can give you that, for example, deploy NSX without you having to necessarily know how NSX, how to plumb NSX the right way in an HCI environment. We've figured that out for you, and you just run it, and there you go. You've got NSX now. Keep in mind that uh, you know pretty much what we're talking about right now with the VMware Private Cloud is just kind of a, um, a basis for how any environment might, might want to build on top of this. So 
the idea that is that we're laying down a broad uh, horizontal base that a variety of different types of um, you know corporate uh, verticals could fit into. So you know it's uh, warehousing or um, you know uh, um, medical offices. You you name it. Whatever your vertical is, the whole idea is that any one of these can actually be built on top of the the basis for the VMware Private Cloud. All right, Andy, Sean, thanks so much for joining us today and talking to us about HCI and VMware Private Cloud. Again, Andy, if we want to reach you on social media, how do we do that? Uh, most common way is at Andy Banta on Twitter. Um, also, I mean, you can certainly hit me up on uh, at abanta at netapp.com. Uh, I will respond to email as it comes in. All right, and Sean, what about yourself? So, uh, how's at netapp.com, like how's it going, H-O-W-S, uh, or at S. Howard NetApp on Twitter. All right, that music tells me it's time to go. If you'd like to get in touch with us, send us an email to podcast at netapp.com or send us a tweet at NetApp. As always, if you'd like to subscribe, find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher or via techontappodcast.com. If you'd like to share today, leave us a review. On behalf of the entire Tech on Tap podcast team, I'd like to thank Andy Banta and Sean Howard for joining us today. As always, thanks for listening. Oh, yeah. Is it just me that's getting off on this? Oh, yeah.